Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Mm. Oh no. Oh yes. You can't actually start recording. We got we got like four more. Yeah. Well, we, we can. We don't have to pull back the curtain too far. We don't have to include all of this in the episode. Meanwhile, I know Jason won't cut any of this. Jay, yeah. yeah, Jason's going to include twelve hey, minutes man. of like. Hey man, ever ever, <laughs> <laughs> ever since I ever since I realized that I could do chapters in forecast, that has just opened my mind to. I don't need to edit anything. You really do go buck wild with those chapters. I like it a lot, though. I start. I started yeah. doing it for Crossfade for like, hey, I'll start at the intro of a song, and then I started like, hey, I'll start at the discussion of the intro of a song, so that we can like catch what we want to say about the song. And then I was like, why am I not doing this for Try Love? It, it makes us seem like we've got structure to the episode. Just a master at work, really. You love, you to, love see to see it. it. You love to. We see should me. pay you for this. I mean, I should know you. you- I don't know. You get at least, at least the trilon should have a sound before showings. Uh, oh my god! Uh, don't put this on Mike. <laughs> I'm just saying they did it for that one podcast. What what do they got that we don't? Other than fame and popularity and good content. <laughs> well, when you put yeah, it that way, except it seems for all of very that, straightforward. <laughs> we can dream. We'll get there someday. We'll get. It will get infamous for something Aaron says, and then uh, we'll, that's how we'll blow up. We'll get a lot of we'll, ears on our. We'll, we'll get By infamous. You mean very problematic or like? Right. What, yeah. What yeah. It'll be something just awful, uh, but it will unfortunately <sighs> catapult us into fame with certain segments of um, podcast listening. People. I'm so I sorry. Finally, give my Aaron, unfiltered thoughts yeah. on the Hungarians. I, yeah. I, I, I'm finally. Were, were you going to pivot? I was going to say, I know exactly how we're going to actually launch into popularity, and it's going to be because of that review Aaron put on Letterboxd of that, like, under, like, whatever that dumb well, wait, movie or commercial is. Sure. It, it's just going to keep getting likes in an exponential fashion. It's going to become the most liked review on Letterboxd. And then Honestly, Aaron he, is the best at social media of all of us, even though he quick. kind of is. That's why I had to leave. Oh my god! I had to leave. Yeah, sure, I get it. There was there was nowhere else for you to grow. Let me see. There are now nine yeah. reviews for that thing. Uh, I'm going to sort by review popularity. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one guy who has more, more which is very upsetting because yeah, my review are, is are, extremely yeah. funny. You are still right. not top. You are. Um, yeah. Somebody else took one. it from him. It's not. Yeah, fair. but you still have 25. But I was the first, which is the point. I was, yes. I was the. F- I was the f- nobody. This is the dumbest obscure shit. Why are we recording? The, what? Literally, <laughs> no you, one knows what we're talking about. Did you, did you Has see, any context you see, for what we're talking about? Did you see the follow up comments on the other guy's review? Because sure, <laughs> like, I googled the title <laughs> in the director's last name. Uh, you were you weren't first. The other guy was first. <laughs> yeah, some collaborators. Uh, yes. Wow, it's yeah. I, the only thing more obscure is if I just started reading like papers from college. Like if I just I just pulled out like book reviews wrote, for like I wrote, random. I, think, uh, I wrote a True Grit 
critical essay and a black swan Ooh. essay in college. I think Cody wrote a drive essay. That's I right. wasn't even talking about movies. Like, if I just start talking about South African literature. What about a like, uh, on mic? You did a time travel essay, didn't you, Cody? Uh, yeah. What were the What were the films I included in that? Time Traveler's Wife, About Time, and there was one other like t- uh, maybe maybe Looper. Maybe, I was maybe say Looper. Yeah, because uh, yeah. that's a good tie-in because Jason also briefly ran a website called the Blunderbusters with Seth, right? Yes, Wherein because. You- because yeah, we ahead. took the name from the weapon that they use, that like oh, yeah. shotgun thing, it, they call it the blunderbuss in there, and we were just obsessed with how cool that movie looked, and uh, and rightfully so. A, and, a, and a WordPress was free with that name. So look that, at us uh, with our outdated plugs. This is awesome. That. Yeah, check that I, shit out. I, I wrote a rhetorical analysis of the video game Portal in college. Um, if, if That's you a hit video that game, right? That video. Actually, it's a door. Um, it's a it's another oh. term for a passageway or a door. Um, is it like a door into this episode? It might be, wow. uh, but I I do I do I, I've been getting so guys I'm sorry I've been getting comments from the listeners about how maybe we're a little bit too cold too analytical too too good i think at discussing movies we need to like show a little bit of humanity we know we need to show the chink in the armor a little bit so what i want to do is i want to start by asking if if wes anderson directed a scene in which you were being introduced as a character what detail shots like what things would be in detail shots from your room that would exemplify you and your lifestyle oh my god um there would be a close up on me like jiggling my leg because I do that without thinking whenever I'm sitting down. That would certainly mm-hmm. be part of it. Um, that's all I got. Um, <laughs> mine would be shot in like documentary style, but it would keep cutting to things that I would reference as I was speaking. And then every time it cut back, Godzilla would have moved to a different place in the room. And I would, okay. be, I would just be like in the process of sitting back down for like a half second to make it clear that I had been getting up during the clips away and moving Godzilla around different parts of the uh, shot, but it would, he would always be clearly visible, but in a different place. Stellar, stellar Aaron. Uh, just like the, the centered shot of me in like the center of a room with like bookcases behind me. And they're just books that I've tried to get my friends to read for years that no one has read. And it's just like, there's like a little sign in the background pointing that out while I'm talking. And it's, it's like very, uh, very much centered in the shot. It's like a very little twee kind of aesthetic. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's it. I don't know. Something like that, probably. Well, that was a lot I'm of really fun. Making a, uh, really going for the book guy this time around, I think. I, well, I didn't, I was trying to think like, what is, I was trying to think of like all the like, uh, like stereotypical Wes Anderson shots and I didn't fit in any. And I was like, I was going to make that joke with like video games, but it's like, we've talked a million times about how I don't have physical media really, uh, if I was doing it for Cody, I would have made this same joke about him with Blu-rays, uh, which That's would have been really funnier and more true to life. But yeah, yeah. I just wasn't. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's, <clears throat> that's, that's really, really funny. Um, very Cody, funny. Uh, Jason, what about yours? Uh, oh, shit. Yuka, oh yeah, now you're put on your, yeah. No, what's yours, Jason? Uh, am I being hoist? Um, let's see. I would probably have one of, I don't know, some of the Pikmin plushies that I've got on my shelf. Um, not Luigi. Well, he's out in the main room. He's more of like okay. a fixture of the home rather than like part of my identity. Um, gotcha. 
uh, an up close shot of one of the instruments hanging from the walls, probably the Ibanez bass I play most often. Um, and then just like, like a, like a wider shot, but still pretty focused on one shelf of like the manga and Japanese literature I have on one shelf in my room. Um, yeah. Can I change my answer? Bro, did you do you realize that I, I gave a good answer and you you need? No, I I would I just decided that I would I would like to be in uh, Steve Zissou's uh, aquatic uh, vehicle just for no reason. Oh sweet! Just the, no, can I? I just want to be it's in that. Still, still, still with the bookshelf. To that. Still bookshelf. Search. That's what. That's way better. Yeah, fuck the bookshelf, man. Just put me in. Put me in the yeah, submarine I thing. Agree. Get the big I fish in the background. Yeah. Cody, do you want to change your answer too? Um, I don't know. The, I guess I could add on to it uh, on top of leg jiggling. Maybe I'd be wearing like tennis shoes, um, a headband, a, like, I don't know, one of my 70 dry fit shirts to like really focus on the, the sports correspondentness. Um, it, it, I, honestly, like this could be an entirely different opening depending on what facial hair I have. Like you would take a completely different approach if I had a mustache versus like clean shaven or full beard because I got, you know, I got so many options, you know, I've got so many different looks. These days would be playing it softly over the entire interview. Yep. That's right. Um, yeah. Yeah. We maybe get like, play some, play some, the national over, you know, they've got a lot of albums. We could find something that works. I don't know if a song as sad as anything the national has ever done has ever appeared in a, you know, in a, in any, in anything but a death scene in a Wes Anderson movie. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, Wes Anderson doesn't really go for like the middle age sadness outside of maybe life aquatic. The the aim is usually maybe just a, a titch younger than that. Um, yeah, you're probably. Well, I like right. how you, I like how you said Wes Anderson doesn't go for the middle age sadness and then named a very very iconic movie about middle age. Sadness. Right. Uh, other other than that one, that's uh, that's a big yeah, I one. I don't know. That's like what one out of ten. Not bad. It, was that words part? To be fair, a lot of people are sad in that movie. Okay, it's not just yeah, Gene Hackman. I mean, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, the right. critics were sad while watching it. I believe. Uh, wow. Yeah. Wait, which one? I, well, I yeah, I'm actually going to talk about this in my thoughts on the film. So we'll just we'll save that little nugget for later. Okay. He's going to drop something spooky on us. Yeah, I'm excited. I look, for, I look forward to Harry's uh, retaliation. Apparently, he I think he was stanced up. I think he got out of his chair. I heard some. Well, I mean, I think break. everybody knows that people didn't like Life Aquatic when it came out, and they're fucking morons because that's one of Wes Anderson's best movies. I agree. Uh, so thank you for that fun answer. I hope that that has met our quota of, um, human, like warm blood running through our veins, but thank you listeners for listening to try love, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at try love podcast. You can find them on Twitter at Trilon cinema and at trylon.org. My name is Jason Daphnis. Uh, I'm not in the army. I just have short hair and you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. And my name's Cody. So what? And you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. They'll never catch me, man, because I'm fucking innocent. I'm Harry, and you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. I'm Aaron. I'm sensitive to the fact that other people are not comfortable talking about emotional disturbances. And you can find me on Twitter at RB Please. That's us. And this movie is Bottle Rocket, uh, produced by Polly Platt as part of the Polly Platt series playing at the Trilon. Get tickets at Trilon.org. Aaron, tell us what this movie is about. I guess. I guess I'll do that. 
yeah. Bottle Rocket, 1996, directed by Wes Anderson in his full-length feature film debut. Uh, the film was based on Anderson's short film of the same name from four years earlier, 1992. Uh, this movie uh, uh, also continues, yes, the Trilon series looking at the films of Polly Platt. Platt, uh, as Jason mentioned, co-produced uh, Bottle Rocket um, and also helped lead to the film's creation uh, in other ways. She, she had shown uh, Anderson's short film uh, to longtime collaborator uh, and director and a person we talked about on last episode, James L. Brooks. Uh, Brooks was impressed with the short film and kind of went to, to Texas uh, in order to uh, uh, try and convince Anderson to make a full-length film off of it and kind of helped with its, its financing. Um, the film follows Luke Wilson as Anthony Adams, a young man who has recently ended his time in a voluntary psychiatric hospital uh, who meets up with his friend Dignan, played by Owen Wilson, uh, who is an eccentric, uh, volatile, you might call him a bottle rocket, a uh, young man who plans small-time heists for the two to pull off. Uh, included in their plans uh, is a getaway driver, uh, is Bob Maplethorpe, played by Robert Musgrave. Uh, he's a friend, but he's kind of a sad sack who they only include because he's the only person they know with a car. Uh, along the way, Anthony falls in love with Inez, played by Lumi Cavazos, uh, who is a Paraguayan maid who works at a, a motel that they stay at. Um, Dignan, however, focuses on proving himself to Mr. Henry, played by James Kahn, uh, a man who owes a, owns a landscaping business and leads a criminal group uh, on the side. Uh, Battle Rocket kickstarted Wes Anderson's career, and although it was a bit of a financial failure, it was uh, ultimately a critical success and helped to establish a young director uh, with a fresh and unmistakable style. Jason, that's what I got. That's what you got. And what I got is an idea of what I feel about this movie. I really quite enjoy this movie. I think this is obviously, um, this is filling in the gaps for me about, uh, Wes Anderson. I hadn't, I haven't seen a ton of his movies, but almost all of what I've seen is like 2010 and onward. Um, so I guess the style thing I'll, I'll get into in a sec. Um, but, uh, overall, I think like, I don't know, just going through letterbox reviews as I do after watching a movie, um, it seems like there are a lot of, you know, qualifiers. There are a lot of like, you know, despite it being a mess or, you know, without it, without, uh, you know, the signature style, it's an okay, whatever. I feel like it's a lot stronger than that and a lot more even than a lot of reviews were, um, indicating. I feel like it was pretty straightforward, uh, you know, pretty, um, you know, obviously entertaining. Uh, I think like, the core of it is like the rapid maturing of two people, Dignan and Anthony, um, which Harry brought up a great point. Why didn't they, why didn't just make them brothers? And I don't know that that is a great reason why he didn't, but I would like to like to pose that question to the group later on. Um, I think that uh, like, obviously there's all the, you know, a lot of people have pointed out that it's about, you know, the fleeting youth and like not being who you uh, once were and realizing that, you know, the, the life you used to be able to lead isn't really one that you can anymore. But I think the the sort of tragedy and sort of what drew me in is the idea that not only is and we've talked a lot about on this podcast about like who you are today, who you, you know, the idea that you hope that there's an essential version of you that you can carry forward into the future um, or that, you know, you, you, you can hold on to anyway for, in the present from the past. But I think that again like the core tragedy here and again what was most compelling to me is like the idea that not only do they does uh, do anthony and dignan want to be able to do that but um specifically dignan is like has the hubris to like forecast into the future with a 75 year plan about like basically until the day he dies he would like to be able to establish himself as he is now uh and sort of build from what that is without realizing that people 
change. People like necessarily are changed by their world and their environment. Uh, that's probably way too granular for this overview summary. But um, I think a lot of the pieces of the movie really support that. I think that the casting of James Caan as like the two bit uh, thief who just like double crosses everybody um, and is like sort of in his prime despite being beyond middle age. I think that's genius level casting. Uh, I think that. Um, uh, okay. So the, the style I think also is, is another thing that maybe not thematically, but just like fits a lot better. Um, I really like the composition of each shot. All those things that you might say about a Wes Anderson film more or less apply here, except like, of course it's not like, like we're seeing the seedling of, uh, of a, of a style, right? Like that's not a new thing to point out, but I think like the fact that it has more or relies more on traditional, um, quote unquote traditional filming uh, style and, you know, less on the very toyetic, very, um, you know, dollhouse style that he became known for, uh, that Wes Anderson became known for. That is, I think that the fact that it relies less on that gives the more dramatic and more like interpersonal sort of compelling bits, a little bit more breathing room and less like joke to joke to joke that some of the other films can feel like. And I know that's a reduction, but in, when I'm thinking back to the movies I have seen of his, it comes down to like, Oh, I remember this very like almost plasticine or almost, uh, you know, diorama feel. I don't think this, that feeling is going to stick in this movie. Um, I think that the dramatic moments are given more time to breathe in between those with this, you know, sort of hybrid style. Uh, not that there's anything lost in future movies, his style and his stories adapted, but I think that it just gives me a really interesting place to look from like, okay, so he does know how to use the, like a lighter version of his style, plus something maybe more traditional, more referential that, uh, to, to like complement the story that he's trying to tell. Um, so I think that's, that's probably a bit scatterbrained, but I hope that, uh, gives us some talking points to jump off of, but, um, you, you know, I'd like to be able to tell Cody that's his turn to go, but I don't think he can understand me. Um, Harry, would you mind telling him for me? Well, I am in charge, so you, you got to leave it up to me. Uh, Cody, I believe it is your turn, my, my man. Wow. Well, thanks, uh, Jason and Harry for that. I don't know if um, that's a, your turn in Spanish at all. So sorry, Jason, if that's what you were looking for. We'll get Fun. there. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll fix it in post. Maybe we won't. Um, but I guarantee this disclaimer will stay in. So have fun with that, dear listener. Uh, yeah, I, so I, I saw Bottle Rocket one other time in my life uh, about 10 years ago or so. And I think back then I maybe had a little less patience for like, you know, the sort of raw first films of established directors or at least directors I had like more of a familiarity with. I remember thinking at the time, like this, this was a fine movie, but I wasn't really having the type of fun I maybe would have expected from like, again, this, that sort of established Wes Anderson style quote unquote, but uh, I definitely had fun with it this time. Uh, I had quite a bit of fun and that was certainly partially because I watched it with my friends. Shout out to my friends. Um, come on the pod. Uh, you may or may not already be here, but I also think I have more of a craving now for like career context, you know, especially after doing a handful of them uh, on, on this podcast and, you know, kind of mapping out trajectories of like, you know, in this case where, where Wes Anderson's style and perspective got its start at, it's, it's really fun to revisit that, I think. And it's revealing in its own way that the character's Anderson shows us, uh, it feels weird just calling him Anderson. I'm just going to keep saying Wes Anderson. Uh, this, the characters he shows us are these sort of earnest losers who are endearing, but also kind of inevitably destined for some semblance of failure by the film's end, at least in what we could maybe consider the A plot. Um, there are a lot of threads kind of going on here. That kind of a story doesn't 
always work. Um, but there, like, there's enough of that sort of Wes Anderson charm so that when I watch, for example, you know, uh, Dignan have a sequence of like particular unlikability, or if I'm watching Anthony be incredibly cringy while trying to flirt, I'm not thinking about how grating it is because it's not really, at, at least I, I didn't really think this movie was that grating in, in the sort of way that you would maybe expect from, from a first time, you know, feature film debut, that sort of thing. I guess to be grading, <laughs> there needs to be like parts actively working against each other. And if anything, maybe I felt an inverse of that, which is, you know, their journey is frequently kind of amorphous and without pointed direction, which is kind of the point, but the movie doesn't always ride that fine line as well as maybe it could. And I would sometimes step back and ask, wait, what are they doing again? Um, you know, which is fine. I, I think Bottle Rocket is genuinely funny. That covers, you know, any sort of like inconsistencies with plot, uh, I guess. And, and I think it attempts to be very genuinely sweet, especially through the subplot with Ines. Um, part of that felt a little weird. Um, and for all the things this film telegraphs about where Wes Anderson's like stylistic, especially sensibilities might take him, it also offers a glimpse into how he doesn't always know how to incorporate other like you know, languages and, and cultures, yeah, uh, despite how often he seems to really, really want to make them part of his stories, like, seemingly genuinely. Um, there may not necessarily be a ton more to say about that. I guess we'll see uh, because it's also just an easy and well-warranted critique of white filmmakers who like get more exposure and they get bigger budgets and they get more leeway to kind of do the things that maybe they want to do with less oversight throughout their careers. Um, but I will say at the very least, there's, like a definite warmth coming from the Ines character and the performance of Lumi Cavazos that I think a movie like this definitely needs to kind of dull those edges a little bit. And that was definitely appreciated. Um, but yeah, I, you could do a whole lot worse for your first feature film. I think I, I like this particular case study of characters creating stakes in their own heads. I like the vintage Anderson-y screen, Wes Anderson-y, excuse me, screenplay thing of retorts that are like, you know, they're like little stutter steps. They're just the perfect amount of unnatural and they kind of give you a big question mark. Um, I like the Wilson brothers a whole lot. And actually, is that a Wilson brother or yonder? Harry Wilson? Wow. What a delight. Hey, hey, Harry, what are you up to? Wow. Is that you, buddy? Well, gosh, Cody, wow. I was just tickled by that introduction, buddy. I'm so glad that you made the space for me to talk this way. I I really love being here. I've been a big fan of the podcast for a long time now. This is going to be my first time on the podcast. Did you guys hear that part, uh, that thing that recently happened on Twitter where they interviewed Owen Wilson and they clearly stitched together like seven different interviews? <laughs> yeah. This was it's rough. Marvel. It was really, really good. Uh, anyway, I'm done with my Owen Wilson impression. Uh, but thank you, Cody. Yeah, um, I'm a really big Wes Anderson fan, um, and this was a really fascinating first watch for me. Um, it's it's an interesting movie that both benefits and uh, is harmed by its close association with Wes Anderson, especially by Wes Anderson aficionados. I do want to talk about Wes Anderson's big race problem, Cody, um, because he is he has a really really big tokenization problem, I think, and it's really interesting to see the roots of that here. Um, that's something that that haunts him throughout all of the rest of his films, I think kind of coming to a head in Isle of Dogs, in my opinion. Um, but uh, I liked this movie a lot. I have some mixed feelings about it. Um, I don't know if I appreciated it as quite as much as you two. Um, it just felt very first filmy to me, sort of in the same way as like Blood Simple or Reservoir Dogs feel where it's like, they're sort of like this catalytic 
first attempt where where this ambitious young filmmaker who has a lot of great ideas is still sort of figuring things out. Um, I think that the seed of what Wes Anderson would become very good at, which are these like very plot-like ensemble character studies basically is really evident here uh, in the form of our two main characters played by the Wilson brothers. And I really, really enjoy that. And I think that even this early on, he has a very resonant thematic core at the heart of this movie that is surprisingly subtle for what it is. I mean, Cody, you alluded to it really well. Um, these earnest losers who make stakes in their own heads, right? Like, I think that this is a movie that that's really about, like lionizing or, or celebrating people who don't really have bright futures or really much of any futures at all. Right. And therefore are sort of like, these are, these are people in search of any sort of like, it's, it's almost a waiting for Godot type film, right? Because it's like, these people have nothing to do and nowhere to go and no, no one to be. And unlike so many movie protagonists, they don't really have like secret special skills that are going to be established. Like they really are just sort of like misfits in the truest sense, just like these, these lovable doofuses doofuses. And um, the fact that they stick together as closely as they do. um, And it doesn't even occur to them not to stick together in that way, despite their dysfunctionality um, is really tender. The fact that they're all united by the way that they've been bullied Um, There's a really pivotal scene that speaks to that uh, and the way that they are sort of like continually cast against their environment, which is actually something that I really like about this movie is that it's ironic, right? But it's almost like I did. I wouldn't think this would be Wes Anderson's first movie because it feels like he's working against his typical style here in the sense that usually, as Jason referred to, he has these meticulously crafted diorama, like ultra colorful, ultra saturated um fantasy worlds that these larger than life characters inhabit. And that is um, subverted here in that, like we get the armpit of West Texas for this movie, right? Like it's very much in the blood simple mode of just like these gaudy, like 1990s by way of 1970s uh, suburban homes and these factories and these diners and these larger than life characters who look like and feel like they belong in something like Moonrise Kingdom or um, uh, like the Darjeeling Limited still inhabit these spaces. But the effect of that, of seeing them in in these beige concrete worlds is to make them so stick out, right? Like later on in this movie, they're all literally wearing yellow jumpsuits, right? And they just stick out like sore thumbs and they're, they're accosted and made fun of by the other people who look like they actually belong in this world. And I think that this movie has a lot to say about people like that and a lot to say about the sort of like a, a really like earnest, genuine affection for like optimism and earnestness in the face of um, a sort of like bleakness or a sort of lack of purpose in meaning um, and the way that we can find that in one another um, and the way that misfits find that in one another that I really um, related to and really sort of like connected with. Right. And I think that, that even the Inez storyline sort of like um, brings that through in a way that was much better and more realized than I thought it was going to be based on sort of the first act of this movie. Um, so all of that is to say that I actually, I, I don't know that I disagree with the idea that it's, it's a bit of a mess, right? It's a little bit of an ensemble places kind of go, go all over the place, but I think that there's something here that's really special. And I think that it makes a lot of sense that Wes Anderson became who he became after this movie. Um, I would be fascinated to know for the record uh, what Polly Platt's 
input was in this movie. Like I know that she is a very accomplished production designer. I know that she just produced this movie, which kind of surprised me because I really thought that like the, the level of production design um, genius in this movie uh, in the way I mentioned the the subversive qualities of like casting characters in a world in which they do not belong, that felt very Polly Platt to me. Um, so I, you got to wonder how like how much of an input she had on that. Um, but Aaron, I am fascinated to hear your thoughts as the sort of um, the third Wilson brother here. Uh, so why don't you hit us with it? Look, as I'm as long as I'm not the Bob in this. Uh, situation I, I think i'm okay I don't, I don't i don't think any of us are the bob but uh uh yeah i um i think i agree largely with what everybody said i i uh unlike carrie i don't actually have a great love for wes anderson um i don't hate wes anderson i'm not one of those people who just shits on him because oh he's a hipster or whatever um i i just uh, uh strangely enough when i was younger um i really liked the life aquatic with steve zissou uh, I probably saw it like three times in theaters in 2004, despite, I think there being some stuff in that movie that I probably shouldn't have seen. I think it's like some nudity in there. Um, so I, I guess that's my favorite film. Uh, and I know that's a bit of a, a wild hot take. It's not generally regarded as, as one of Anderson's best films, but I saw that movie a lot. I like it. Um, but I, I think that the other ones I've seen over the years, uh, are films that I've respected, but honestly, maybe had a pretty bad time watching, um, Moonrise Kingdom, uh, Grand Budapest Hotel. You know, these are critically acclaimed films that I I think I felt okay about, but I I didn't really enjoy the experience of actually like watching them. Um, I think part of this is, uh, kind of a general detachment from Anderson's aesthetic sensibilities. Uh, I also think that a lot of his films are kind of awkward in a way that I don't really connect with and is maybe a little bit off-putting for me. Um, and, and I, 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 it feels bad to say, but I find some of them a little boring. Maybe I think that, that a lot of times I'm watching some, some pretty creative, colorful camera work and, and kind of, uh, directing. Uh, but for some reason I don't feel as gripped maybe as I should have. And maybe that, I think that's probably on me more than on Anderson's films, but I have felt that way while watching some of the stuff. Um, but I do respect his films and I think that, uh, it was interesting to watch Bottle Rocket and try and pinpoint where Anderson's aesthetic came from. Uh, I think, as Harry mentioned, this is kind of an interesting directorial debut. I think it is comparable to uh, something like Blood Simple, certainly Reservoir Dogs. Uh, I even went uh, this morning uh, to to good old YouTube and watched the short film uh, that this was based on. Um, And so maybe there's some interesting stuff to talk about there. Uh, so, you know, in general, I think maybe I was maybe a little bit more down on this than some of the others on the podcast here. I do think there are some standout moments, uh, the scene at, uh, Bob's house, for example, where, where Bob and Anthony are kind of playing with this gun and like turning it around and pointing, pointing it at each other, uh, unintentionally while they're talking is like humorous and tense at the same time and has this weird kind of juxtaposition of, of kind of feelings and emotions that, that often come with, with Wes Anderson's films. Um, I think that the relationship with uh, Anthony and Inez also feels pretty delightful to watch, um, which kind of leads to the next point, which is that uh, Wes Anderson, um, even in his first film here was, was already like really incredible with actors. I think there are moments in this film that feel meandering, like maybe they didn't have a script and they're just kind of shooting the shit. Uh, but like, regardless, um, I, I think that everybody here does a really good job. And in most of his films, especially down the road would be completely stacked with like a cast with just like one big name after the other, right? Not just like Bill Murray, but like a ton of great actors. And I think that you can see his skill with working with actors in this film. 
um, in an interesting way. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I kind of dug it. I don't know if I loved it, but I dug it and, uh, I'm excited to talk about it more. Yeah, he digs it. Um, yeah, the, collectively, I think the three of you, I guess me as well, like we, we tunneled in on a couple, like, I, I guess variations of like stylistic points that I just want to quickly comment on. And like, um, Aaron, you mentioned the sort of like this feeling of awkwardness and I definitely get what you mean. Um, like for me specifically, and I guess this also goes, uh, or touches on what you were talking about Harry, with like this movie and Wes Anderson himself kind of working against what comes to be like his quote unquote style, like capital S style. And it's, it's the sequences for me where that really kind of were on display would be like where we're talking about characters, we're talking about things happening off screen. And like, if this were a contemporary, you know, a recent Wes Anderson feature, he would just like cut to that and show you that thing, right? Like he would show you these people, he would show you those places, he would show that happening. Um, here we're just kind of like we're we're very uh locked into um the armpit of texas is actually very good uh but like we don't stray from these couple of places which feels like it, and that's also kind of you know like now we see him meandering like like a lot of wes anderson movies are globetrotting adventures uh you know like the french dispatch seems like it's going to be all over the place so to be confined like in these spaces but also like not kind of cutting out to see what's going on someplace else, excuse me someplace else in a way that like we would maybe expect um for those of us who have like seen the rest of his filmography did feel like a, a little a, a little awkward uh, a little strange and um yeah and however much we were going to talk about the I, what jason brought up up top um about the thing harry commented on when we were watching i'm just crisscrossing all over the place but the idea of like um the wilson brothers not being on screen brothers that is like also i honestly i don't know if i have a way to defend it like uh, other than maybe like you know wes anderson because there there is a set of brothers in the movie and I could like me kind of projecting is like, maybe he didn't want Bob and future man to have this sort of compare contrast relationship with Anthony and Dignan, you know, if they were going to be brothers, you know, maybe in his head, this movie was a different thing, but like the brother energy is very much there. And like, I love the Darjeeling limited specifically as a, like not to just throw around character study, but like the dynamics and interiorities of those three brothers are fleshed out in a way that like I can always, I always feel like I can return to. Um, and like you get pieces of that in that sequence that Aaron was talking about with the gun where it's like, uh, I guess here it, it is the gun, you know, Anthony Dignan and Bob, you know, it's like tense and it's funny. And like, that's how like it feels with um, Jason Schwartzman, Adrian Brody and Owen Wilson playing brothers where it's like, you're, you're laughing at these, uh, at these men who in their own ways have violent tendencies. And like, it's this weird fusion of humor and awkwardness and like tense feeling that like, yeah, I, I guess, I don't know if I ever, a, a great reason for that. Um, sorry to come up empty on that, but it's like a, a definitely an interesting question. You could have just made this, you know, a brother movie and that would have been, that would have made, that would have made sense to me. I don't know. Maybe they really wanted Owen Wilson to have short hair and Luke Wilson to have like extremely nineties hair. And so they just decided not to make them brothers. I, I don't know. That's my two cents. 
Um, I wanted to return to something Aaron said, but first, um, I, on the brother point, I actually, I've been thinking about that ever since Jason brought it up. And I think it's pretty important that Dignan is not related to, uh, our sort of main character in the sense that he is like the archetypal bad influence friend to Anthony. There's that whole scene where, um, Anthony is talking to his, um, sister grace who is sort of like um ironically precocious and much more mature than he is and it's supposed to characterize him as this sort of like obviously arrested development big kid um in comparison to her and she says basically just that right that dignan is a bad influence this movie is sort of ultimately about that right about like the influence that that your environment or your um the people you run with like have on you there's the great irony at the beginning of this movie where um Anthony is the supposedly the quote unquote crazy one who has uh, checked himself into a voluntary psychiatric facility, but Dignan is right there to bust him out under the false assumption that a, he is being uh, held there against his will and b that, um, that he doesn't want to be there. Um, and so like, there's this, this great irony that like very early on, we established that Anthony is a character who is aware of his disconnection from his world and from maturity um, and is maybe even exhausted by it or attempting to get back on the right path, right? Like he continually alludes to a plan of his own that he has that brings him into sort of cross purposes with Dignan and generates a lot of their tension. Whereas Dignan is the guy who is completely dissociated from reality. He has this wild 75 year plan. He's going to meet up with this, um, this like archetypal gangster who's literally played by the archetypal gangster himself, James Kahn. And I guess that sort of leads me into my other point, which is something that Aaron said about the inherent awkwardness of Wes Anderson's movies, which, and I'm sure you wouldn't disagree with this, but is very much a feature and not a bug, right? I think that like Wes Anderson's a really interesting filmmaker to me because you sort of need a syllabus, right? To, to really understand his movies. I feel like you really gain a lot by watching a bunch of his movies because I think that the sort of like Wes Anderson cinematic universe, for lack of a better term, it sort of relies on a built vocabulary and understanding. And it's particularly like an understanding of like a, a postmodern sort of, uh, like meta self-consciousness and disillusionment where all of these characters are aware of the difference between themselves and the stories that they are inhabiting or that they want to inhabit and their differences between the worlds that they want to be in and, and the worlds that are right. And there's this great irony to all of the characters, right? Like I think that, that Steve Zizou is like that. Certainly the main character in Grand Budapest Hotel is, is attempting to maintain that. Um, Moonrise Kingdom is essentially about how love can like transport that world and sort of like sustain it. Right. But like all of these characters are characters who are sort of like dealing with the existential fallout of the fact that they aren't the people they want to be, or they aren't the people they thought they were. And just because like the world isn't. And it's really fascinating because that's a, it's like, it's got this very postmodern self-conscious relationship to media itself, which is why like Tarantino and Wes Anderson, I think are, are weirdly similar filmmakers in a lot of ways, because they're both like, they're both people who are so fundamentally writing about and making movies about being movie people, right? And I think that all of these characters are exactly that. And like, it's really fascinating to see that in this movie too, where like Dignan is like, he's trying to be the main character in like a 70s crime movie, even though that is such a 
poor fit for who he is and where he is. And even though even the people that he's making into the archetypes in his head aren't that, right? But like he's going to have his gang. He's going to have his like band of brothers and they're going to pull off heists and they're going to be legendary, right? And he cannot and will not accept that that isn't who he is because he's not this leader. He's not this like... Uh, master thief. Um, he's just sort of a doofus, right? And this movie has an, has a lot of interesting things to say about that, right? And ends up being sort of like a long defense of Dignan, or if not a, a long defense, then at least sort of a um, an apologia for him uh, in a way that that really works for me, and in a way that I think prefigures a lot of what where Wes Anderson goes. Um, and so that's very interesting. But uh, all that is to say that. I, I wonder if that has to do with why you don't feel you sort of feel yourself alienated by these movies, Aaron, just because like you're right. There is sort of like a static distance between what is depicted and like the characters and that can generate a lot of like sort of um, malingering anxieties. Um, I'm thinking of like uh, the Royal Tenenbaums is another great example of this, right? Where like all of the Tenenbaums are haunted by their status as the great Tenenbaums, but none of them feel like the Tenenbaums, right? And like, there's this great irony that, that, um, that Wes Anderson's stylistic choices and aesthetics might be like imprisoning to these people the way that they are for like Steve Zizou, right? Like Steve Zizou is a, is a, not a larger than life character anymore who is trapped in a world that is still larger than life and he hates it. Right. Um, and so that's, that's fascinating to think about, I think. And it's, it's fascinating to, to see how it, it's sort of fomented in this, um, early example. Sure. Um, I, not to push back on that, but like, I didn't get any sense of self-awareness from Dignan as a character. Maybe I just wasn't looking close or hard enough. Like, this is a character. I mean, I, I, I am totally on board with the idea that they're like, but I think both Anthony and Dignan are sort of in a state of arrested development, but only in relation to each other, if that makes sense. Um, like sort of when Anthony was, you know, checked himself into a psychiatric, psychiatric unit for exhaustion, uh, Dignan sort of like, you know, classically lost a part of himself sort of thing. Um, and, and, you know, Dignan didn't really develop without him. And then when we're catching up together as Anthony and Dignan, we start to get that feeling that, uh, you know, Anthony is a little bit maybe outpaced in terms of like a, sort of a maturity level, like an understanding of like how things are changing and how things have changed, where his priorities might be. Um, we don't really know a whole lot about their relationship prior to the events of the movie, which I obviously intentional, but right. Um, like, also, to be clear, I agree. Like Digden is is at no point a self aware character. Absolutely, sure. I think that's his big difference between Anthony. I think that's that's the, their signature difference. In fact, okay. right? Yeah, I'm just Anthony thinking of like starting to be aware that like, hey, maybe I am like this weird arrested development loser, and I'm not as cool as I think I am. And Dignan is right. the guy. No, I, we absolutely live in a fantasy world. Right, right. I mean, this is a character who, like, a scene after um, Anthony knows that uh bob has left like he's left with the car and anthony knew and he didn't tell dignan and there this sort of the fallout in the cafe the scene where we all started imitating characters from pulp fiction as owen wilson um but in that scene like <laughs> uh anthony says i'm sorry to him he's like you know i'm sorry dignan not telling you for letting him go or whatever and he's like that's all i needed i'm that's all i needed from you let's move on and he's like let's get back on with the 75 year plan just like adapting and reacting and then in the next moment uh he says i'm sorry about um uh about you know being so attached to inez and like being so obsessed with that and he says you don't need to tell me sorry don't you ever tell me sorry like dignan is then like completely flip-flopped on it i don't think there's any sense of like 
uh, <laughs> permanence in his character through his script or through like the acting or anything. I don't think there's any sense that like he knows how ridiculous he's being. Um, where there is that, for, from my perspective, I think with Anthony that he's, you know, just like he he's changed more as a person and he realizes how much he's changed. It, where where in Dignan's case, he just hasn't. He hasn't had that moment, right? That's an okay place yeah. to pivot if you don't have anything to say on that, Aaron. Uh, well, c- kind of two things, I guess. Uh, uh, the first would be, I guess, returning to to some stuff that Harry was saying and, and maybe trying to tie it together as I wing it here. Uh, the first would be, Harry, I love your poetic uh, portrayal of me disliking the awkwardness in Anderson's films. Uh, however, uh, I, uh, awkwardness makes me feel bad, and I like movies that make me feel good. Uh, and, and Anderson films, they often make me feel bad because the people feel bad. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, it's awkward. Uh, I don't know. It's kind of the same thing we talked about with like high school movies. I have like that same thing where it's like just this awkwardness really makes me feel quite uncomfortable. And maybe there's something, uh, kind of deeper there, but I don't know. I just, it's, it just like starts springing up the, the, the moment I start watching it. Um, part of it is also the, the, the weird mishmash of like, uh, uh, kind of, or even like the the quickness with which Anderson changes tones, uh, uh, thinking specifically about like um, the death of a certain character in Grand Budapest Hotel uh, is portrayed like very violently, but after a very like slapstick chase sequence uh, and it, it something about that makes me feel very uncomfortable. And some of that is, is here as well. I think that the kind of more, um, let's say normal uh, kind of, uh, you know, aesthetic and vibe of this movie, I think helps it work a little better uh, in that this movie is uh, very like comedic and, and comical. Um, but I think it is doing something, uh, the comparison to, to Tarantino specifically Reservoir Dogs is actually quite good uh, because both of those, both, both this and Reservoir Dogs um, were kind of doing a similar thing in my mind where they were, accentuating a lot of the uh, kind of problems, uh, the horrors specifically with Reservoir Dogs, but a a lot of the problems with like a life of crime that was portrayed in films uh, from generations past uh, and actually portraying the realistic issues with, with a life of crime by accentuating the comedic or cartoonish or violent elements. Uh, You know, Reservoir Dogs is, you know, a serious movie at times, but also very uh, showy, right? I mean, there's there's a lot of the long tracking shots. There's stuck in the middle with you playing, right? Um, and it has those elements, and it is much more violent than a lot of films that came before it, su- such that you know people were like startled when they saw it in the theater. Um, and and those cartoonish elements accentuate, uh, uh, you know, the the problems with with a life of crime here, the comedic elements do that too. So even though this is like a less realistic film, uh, the comedy kind of heightens the, the feeling of sadness you feel watching these characters, uh, basically resorting to this in, in, as a way to, uh, kind of feel something, right? You, you get the, the feeling that like Dignan is not doing this to make a ton of money, right? He's like robbing a bookstore. Um, but he just kind of wants to be with his friends and he wants to be accepted by society and Mr. Henry. And even though that's like, funny like 90 percent of the time like that that humor highlights how sad it is uh which i think is is kind of um you know anderson would go and explore that kind of uh uh, filmmaking style in in later movies 
Yeah, you said something that I that really gets at the heart of something that I love about Wes Anderson, actually, which is that um, I agree with you and still see it as a feature, not a bug that like there are whiplash tone differences. I, I think particularly Grand Budapest Hotel is the best example because that's kind of the fulcrum upon which that entire movie operates. But um, throughout all of his movies, there there is that where like the absurdity and the um, lightness of touch and uh, sort of whimsy of his movies, they they hide or um, sort of like obscure a really potent like darkness or fear. I think that's true in this movie. Like I'm thinking about my favorite scene in um, Moonrise Kingdom is when Bill Murray and uh, his wife are in bed together and they're talking about how like they're, they're basically just facing down the future where they're like, uh, those kids, all they've got is us. And then the other one says like, it's not enough or something like that. Right. Like you feel that, like I, I feel the dread that hangs over, uh, these characters in, in really all of Wes Anderson's movies. A lot of Wes Anderson's movies are about reconciling with that dread. And I think that's true here. Um, the ending of this movie is is very very affecting um cody and jason it reminded me of the end of that hey arnold episode we watched recently with the siblings where like there's this there's this moment oh yeah uh, where Mm. owen wilson's character dignan is being led away and he looks back at his friends and, and he is suddenly afraid and sad right because he's been separated from the people by which he derives his definition he's separated from the people that allow him to sustain the world that he wants to live in and be the person he wants to live or he wants to be. And Anthony sort of recognizes that from the other side of the fence at the same time. And there's this very sad moment where it's like, we need each other to, to continue to be the people we want to be. And that is at the heart of why we wanted this friendship to be sustained, why we couldn't imagine anything else is because there's nothing else out there waiting for us, you know? And like, I think to get to your point, Jason, that is no longer totally true of Anthony, right? So like in, in another sense, this is a very sad breakup movie, right? Because it's about a character, Anthony, who is actually coming of age and finding love and finding definition outside of his friends and no longer needing the people who still need him quite the same way and how sad and poignant that is, right? Like it's a really great character study of a, of a relationship that's really coming to an end. Right. I mean, at the, the very last line of this movie or whatever is when Dignan says, isn't it funny that you were in a nut house and now I'm in jail? Right. And it, it's like that is yeah. that sort of like demonstrates the, the change that happened there is that Anthony was able to sort of like come of age and, and find definition outside of this this sort of like death drive almost like uh, toward toward self-destruction. Um, via Inez and via uh, falling in love with somebody else, whereas Dignan still doesn't have that. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's sad. And, and I think that, that this movie has a ton of sympathy for Dignan in that way. Um, and for everything Dignan represents, right? Like this sort of need to continue to have um, mm-hmm. these particular circumstances. And um, I think that, that that's something that Aaron, you were talking uh, through that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and that's really interesting. Uh, sure. I mean, I mean, I'll say that I, I, I think this is this film is also interesting. Uh, if you would consider the rest of Anderson's career, at least most of Anderson's career, how he pivoted from kind of portraying these uh, kind of down on their luck, like misanthropes, uh, and he would go on to kind of portray um, 
I don't know, how would you like a like a upper middle and usually even upper class kind of malaise, right? Um, and, and I think that a lot of the shit he gets is because he he often portrays like upper class uh, uh, characters who are kind of struggling with their place in the world and a world that's changed and, and maybe doesn't respect them in the manner that, that used to, right? Um, and they're often white characters, right? We have we touched a little bit upon some of the the racial politics of, of Anderson's films, uh, which is at least interesting, right? But he often gets kind of um, um, viewed through that that lens, where a lot of people tend to shit on him because his things are very kind of twee and hipstery, uh, but they're often kind of white upper middle class characters. Um, and there's maybe some criticisms there uh, that are that are fair, um, but I think that th- this film is kind of interesting because it's it's not doing that as much, but there are still elements of it, right? Like there, there's a a difference between Anthony and Dignan and that Anthony is clearly more privileged um, than Dignan is right. I mean, the, the, when they go and they, they do their first heist, they are essentially just stealing some like very non-valuable items from uh, Anthony's own family. Right. They're like breaking into the house and like, don't steal the earrings, but we can, we can take, you know, the phone or whatever. Um, and even later in the film, you know, uh, when when Anthony falls in love with Inez and gives her a few hundred dollars in cash, uh, you know, I think we we first kind of view that as like a, a very sweet thing. And like, yes, Dignan is going to be annoyed about that. Um, but, you know, there's this this relationship uh, that that is kind of sparking. And like, this is a good thing that Anthony is doing for this this maid. Um, and I think when we consider that from Dignan's perspective, somebody who doesn't have any money, uh, someone who's who's now kind of uh, uh, disadvantaged quite a bit by that decision on Anthony's part. Um, I think that, that some of like the, the class differences between Anthony and Dignan start to uh, start to kind of uh, reveal themselves. And even kind of last point, I believe early in the film, there is a, a line that Dignan says uh, about the fact that Anthony is able to go to this voluntary uh, psychiatric hospital, uh, yep. which, which is, clearly he's able to get checked in there because he can kind of afford to do so. Right. And that's kind of the difference between the two of them. Yeah. I mean, there's even that line after they rob um, Anthony's house where he says, well, why didn't we rob your house? And, and uh, Dignan says, there's nothing at my house to rob. Yeah. I mean, Anderson has always been aware of the shit that people like to complain about and that doesn't necessarily, it's not hand waving it. Right. But I think that there is maybe a depth there even shown in this film uh, that, uh, that, that, that's interesting to note, I think. Yeah. You could recreate an entire class reading out of this movie. I think about the fact that like, who is allowed to mature, who is allowed to come of age? Um, what does it require? Yes. Already? Yeah. Even, even Bob too, you know, like Bob, Bob's brother goes to jail because Bob is growing like a few thousand dollars worth of marijuana. And then later he's, he's out and they've kind of paid that off because Bob lives in a nice house and has a yep. good amount of money. His brother belongs um, to a country club. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. I stepped on you, Jason. Go ahead. I'm not sorry. I stepped on you, Jason. Sorry. You that worked. got weird. Yeah. <clears throat> no, Cody, say your piece. I saw your mic. Come on. Uh, I was going to say, you can step on me, daddy. Uh, take it away, Jason. Thank you. Perfect segue. Uh, I wanted to, yeah, I mean, Harry got there before me, but I was going to talk a little bit about the ending of this movie um, because I, I sort of saw that as uh, spoilers for 2013's The Last of Us. I saw it as like the okay moment, like at the end of The Last of Us, where they both kind of realize they're, they're keeping up the pretension Ooh. of 
uh, I mean, this isn't like a, a, a nuclear read or anything, but like that tension of they're keeping keeping up the pretension, the performance that like, yeah, when you get back out, Dignan will continue the plan. And like, it's great that you made a joke about busting out, even though, you know, you can't kind of thing like that is, I think, the deflating moment of they both sort of realize that the again, the things the 75 year plan will never be can never be um, by the time that Dignan gets out. Uh, he will, you know, like th- their lives will have changed far too much that they need to f- rediscover what it means to be like friends that it mean like they need to re-meet each other ag- again after, you know, uh, the whole events of this movie are Dignan re-meeting, excuse me, Anthony after his stay uh, in a psychiatric unit. And there will be another clashing of these, like maybe they'll be better prepared for this time, but there'll be another clashing of lifestyles and priorities and, you know, ideas. Maybe, maybe Anthony will be married and have children. Maybe, I don't know how long (laughs) Dignan's in jail, but uh, there will be like, they will be different people than they are when he's going in. Just like they were different people before Anthony went to the unit. Like there's that realization. There's an understanding there. I think in that last shot uh, and in that last line, it's like one of those, again, super stylized Wes Anderson moments of, you know, score playing over and uh, super slow-mo as, you know, he looks over his shoulder and he disappears into the darkness of a jail. And it's pretty like, I don't know, it, it feel it reads kind of like a quirky moment in that mo- in, in the movie um, because you're like, oh, you know, postmodern ending, like no real resolution there. But it does tell me like that is the downbeat. That is the they'll never actually have what they had during the events of this movie. They'll never have what they had before Anthony went to his psychiatric unit. They will like they're they're always going to be one step off from each other until they find that like hard one reconciliation. And I don't think that it happens until that very final moment, the very final moment of the movie, the very, very final line and shot. Uh, so that like, it, I, I rewatched the movie this morning just to like really solidify my thoughts about it. And I think that was the part that struck me the strongest was like all of the pieces that had been adding up, all that tension, all that drama were like never really re- reaching a point of resolution until that, until like not, you know, Dignan got caught or, uh, you know, Anthony's on a better track. It was when they both realized when they're both you know, finally on the same level of understanding and maybe close to the same in maturity or life experience to be able to say, okay, that was, that was a good gag. You know, it was funny that you that you were in the nut house and I'm going to jail and you know, now we can sort of see each other as equals, but tragically we will be separated as long as it would take to like actually rebuild that relationship. It was, what I'm trying to say is like, it's sad, right? It's, it's like the end of the movie is a tragedy. It's very sad, and I'm glad that. Well, first, I'm glad, Jason, that you brought up the use of slow mo, and that's like kind of around when when my hand shot up, or, or I was kind of anticipating that, and I like I wanted to just briefly touch on that. And you you guys characterized kind of the reading of that ending in a better way than I could, but there like there's definitely a weight to it, right? And like the use of slow mo there, and like the Wes Anderson slow motion shots um there's like roughly one at least one per movie um i can't remember if he doubles up maybe in future works of his but like they have definitely a reputation of being like that's part of his aesthetic flair right like that's those are like the the hyped sort of visual sequence uh sequences that like people come away from his movies the the wes anderson sort of like fanboys that you know we go wild for for that use of slow-mo and like it it looks very cool and they're used in they're used in sequences that don't feel as important as this scene at the end of bottle rocket and like it could just be my brain failing but like i i don't know if i can think of a more 
conscious intentional use of slow-mo to like hey we're gonna like we're gonna sit in this moment a little bit longer we're going to wait until um owen wilson's character dignan starts to turn back and look at his friends we're gonna linger on his face and we're gonna watch him walk into the prison and like we're gonna sit with this we're gonna feel that weight because it, like it's there and like we're not gonna scoot away from it we're not gonna cut away from it like we, we've kind of been jarringly doing the rest of the movie we're not gonna cut to like you know a more upbeat song or like a more brightly lit you know space or something like that like the conclusion of this movie is us like we're gonna sit with this and like that's i like how intentional that is and and not that i'm bummed that like i I don't know if he necessarily shied away from it like he's retooled slow motion in a way that suits his style and he conveys like downbeats in different ways now i would say without thinking too hard about it um but yeah i don't know i i was a huge fan of like of how that sequence was constructed and that the slow-mo was was used for that that's like a very i don't to me it seemed like a very appropriate use for that and without kind of like you know uh, getting without being a little little too egregious with it you know he wasn't just like playing with his toys uh for everybody to see and kind of flaunting them around like that was very like that was very efficient what a good way to Um, say that cody damn yeah definitely um, I, I also just wanted to point out that this is the ending of literally every Wes Anderson movie, right? Like, uh, ephemer- ephemerality, uh, and the ending of things are like career wide preoccupations for Wes Anderson. I'm thinking of the Royal Tenenbaums. I'm thinking of, um, uh, the Darjeeling limited, uh, um, life aquatic, obviously grand Budapest, which to be honest, I think is kind of the urtext, uh, for reading like the what when Sanderson is doing right. But like this, this is it too, right? Like I, I hate to be this guy, right, Jason, but we're both this guy, but like Mono no Aware is a big part of Wes Anderson's. Hell thing. yeah, Harry, Harry like, Mackin. Fuck yeah. We're in the process of watching something end. And the fact that it's ending is what gives us our understanding of it and its beauty. And, and the fact that it's ephemeral is why it's, is why it's meaningful, but it's also why it's sad. Right. And so like, there is, there is a very mano no oware sadness to all of Wes Anderson's movies, including this one, right? Like this one, uh, to, to jump onto a, like a Cody topic, like this is almost like a hyper stylized old joy, right? <laughs> Where like this, this now is just we're a, talking. two characters who like, who no longer had in common what they had in common because one of them has the access to the resources to get out of it. Right. One of them has the ability to, uh, lift themselves out of the the fact that there is no plan for them and no future for them. And the other one basically doesn't because he doesn't have what the other has. Right. Um, and it's, it's a movie that has so much tenderness for the relationships that happen to people like that, right. To, to misfits, because it says like, these are people who only have definition and plans and futures with one another. And, you know, like like one of the most affecting things for me in this movie is really the the uh, sort of montage cutaway after Dignan and um, uh, Anthony have their big climactic uh, falling out, and Anthony goes back home. He immediately starts living with Bob, and it's not even questioned that he would do that, right? And he even says like they keep each other company. They're both working these jobs together. He like immediately reestablishes this sort of like pack relationship. And it's just because that's what people like them do, right? Like at the end of this movie, they're all literally wearing uniforms that demarcate them away from the space that they're all a part of. Um, and, and part of this is about like 
um, Inez realizing that she can have that with Anthony and that Anthony isn't going to just abandon her. Right. And, and like that we, we can find value with, with the people who we can relate to in that way. Um, even if that value sort of becomes tragic, right. Because it, it creates this shifting, um, identity that, that can leave some people in the lurch, so to speak a little bit. Um, uh, and then finally my, my like last sort of class point is it's, it's important to note that like all along these people were doomed, right? Because, because Dignan was being used by Abe Henry. Like they, yeah. they were the fall guys. Like they, they set up this, this faux heist so that they would be captured so that Bob would not be at his house so that they could rob his house. So like there, there's a sense in like a, a sense in which the system itself is like, is do- dooming you, right? Like you could also make a point that it's like, this is a, it's a weirdly sort of like anti-incarceration movie, right? Because it's sort of like suggesting that like, this, these are the type of people that are ultimately going to be incarcerated and like, look what it's doing for them, right? Like, what do we think Dignan is going to experience in prison, right? Like, it, it's not going to be good for him. It's not going to make him a better person. It's not going to like, you know, and, and so like, there's, there's an interesting sense there where it's like, this is also a movie that's sort of about what criminals really look like and how they should be handled, you know? Um, and I think that there, there's sort of an interesting class politic there as well. So yeah, I, there's just a lot happening in this movie. I think it's a really surprisingly realized first attempt, right? And I think that it's, it's a really fascinating text to go back and read, knowing what we know now about Wes Anderson and his obsession with all things ephemeral and um, the endings of things and the sort of sadness that accompanies that um, and in the relationships that are developed within those systems. Um, it's, it's fascinating. Exactly. That's what I mean when I say, I don't really see this as a, you know, as a qualifier movie as like a, but you know, despite and stuff like I, I do see it as much more cohesive than I think a lot of appraisal, at least, you know, uh, current appraisal like present day would give it um just because i like especially in discussing it with you guys i've now got even more of an appreciation for how it hits like not just me that a lot of these things are like i'll I'll call it universal um but like at least not siloed in me uh aaron i want to leave you one chance to do you have any thoughts about the ending of the movie before we start to uh segue out uh no thoughts about the end uh okay we can go straight into spare thoughts if you got any of those sure uh i'll say yeah i'll say that if you if you're interested in uh the career of wes anderson and you like this film i would say that the short film is worth watching i'll say that it's maybe 70 percent stuff that you see in this film uh but i think as a kind of uh historical uh piece it it's maybe a little interesting this was was made about four years before the film, um, there are so many shots that are that are reused for the full length film. The shot of everybody kind of lined up at the gun range, uh, the shots of uh, both Wilson brothers kind of going through the house and stealing knickknacks and whatnot. Uh, a lot of these things are like shot for shot, the exact same. Um, so it, it's it's interesting to watch that in because it, it feels like even at a thirteen minute or fourteen minute. Uh, short film a number of years prior uh, it feels like it feels like Anderson already had this kind of figured out a lot um, if there's one thing I think it detracts from the film uh, for it kind of makes some of the stuff specifically at the motel feel like maybe a little meandering right like there's this first act 
where this guy gets out of a, a psychiatric unit and meets up with an old friend. And there's this last act where there's this, this big heist, right? Um, in the middle does maybe feel a bit meandering, even if there's some stuff that I like uh, in there. And I think that watching yeah. the short film accentuates maybe a little bit of that. Um, but, but overall, I think if you watch the short film, you know, it, it is obviously pretty messy. Uh, you know, it's, it's black and white. It's not like shot the best or anything, but you can see like, Maybe Wes Anderson didn't have it in regard to the rest of his career, but he definitely still had it in regard to Bottle Rocket, the full-length film. And so it's it's interesting to watch, I think. But did you consider that Lumi Cavazos is maybe the most charming that a human being has ever been during that she, middle sequence? She, she's great. She's great in this film uh, as a, you know, uh, uh, kind of not, not touching too much upon some of the, the kind of racial stuff with, with Wes Anderson's films. I think that um, the sequences of, of you know, Luke Wilson and, and her kind of interacting are like genuinely delightful, despite I, the joke there is obviously on, you know, the character of Anthony being a, a dipshit, right. But being kind of maybe a bit of a charming dipshit. Um, and yes, Inez is um, the way, the way that Lumi uh, like acts perfectly as this person who doesn't really understand what this guy is saying, but like totally gets like this dude's vibe and is like very kind of humorously going about uh, her job. Right. Oh, sorry, he's what's trash. That? He's, he's a plastic well, I'm, I'm sorry. Man. Said like uh she's like bemused by him, right? Where it's like yes. it's funny to her that that he is so like like uh stunned by her. Yes. Uh it it is it is despite the middle of this film maybe being kind of my least favorite part of it. Uh they, any scene with both of them I thought was was delightful to watch. Agreed. I definitely thought that whole relationship was going to explode fall apart because well it's a wes anderson movie and things have to go wrong eventually to create conflict but that was like genuinely a a really full sweet part of that movie um i want to give a couple of my very stray thoughts and they don't really need expounding but uh the green car yellow jumpsuit blue shirt shot um when uh when applejack pulls by and he's wearing the yellow jumpsuit and luke wilson is wearing a blue shirt is just like man god damn you got green like uh, uh grass and foliage in the background you got the car it's it was just like it's one of the most stunningly like like really just attention grabbing shots i've seen in a long time with that wasn't like we're gonna move the camera really really interesting way just the composition of the shot was really really fucking cool i thought uh just very colorful and nice um the uh, <laughs> sorry when when Dignan tr- like half-assed tries to jack a car after leaving the motel and it's like the most half-assed carjacking attempt i've ever seen <laughs> he, just, he just wiggles the the handle and like takes a fully st- like didn't not even broken down uh hanger and just like sort of jabs it at the glass of the door <laughs> that was one of like the most- those fat hanger so it's not even like a wire hanger it's 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 a wire hanger but the funny part is like he's just poking like the the bent end like the hook end toward the like the the (laughs) the seal of the window it's just man that that i was laughing uh very loud when that happened um uh and then um james khan is basically his character from thief but uh but aged to like 75 years old uh that's my thoughts they literally call him a thief at one point and they all but clear their throat before he says the line. Do you remember that? They're like, he's a famous <clears throat> thief. And it's like, yeah, like we see you. You can play Tangerine Dream now, I guess. Um, man, what a good movie. Uh, but um, I, I, I want to talk. Obviously, we're not the right people to talk about this, but like I there are some big issues with 
um, race and Wes Anderson, just in the sense that like he is trying to be very evocative and very like twee with the way that he constructs his worlds. And oftentimes he ends up like leveraging sort of like exoticism for the purposes of making something feel quirky or alien or funny. Um, like I'm thinking it, that sort of particular sensibility comes to me to a head in Isle of Dogs where like all of the work of that movie is to portray this like mystical world of just contemporary Japan. And it feels like just like a straight up racist movie, in my opinion. Um, I don't think that this movie is racist, right? But like there are some issues where like Inez, her like her misfit connection is just that she's an immigrant and just that she doesn't speak English, which is kind of weird. And like the idea that like she falls in love with Anthony essentially because he's obsessed with her and he values her so highly and thinks that everything that she does and says is incredible. And she's bemused by that because it feels so routine to her. And I I kind of take issue with the idea that like it's supposed to be sort of like very special that Anthony can see her this way when she is just a maid, right? That kind of grosses me out a little bit because it implies that she is not actually like worthy of that sort of fixation, um, which bothers me. Uh, that recurs in a lot of Wes Anderson's movies, right? Like I think that that Wes Anderson sort of does have a, a race issue, um, particularly because of the fact that most of his main characters are white and most of the stories are, are white. Um, but I just wanted to sort of allude to that. Um, that being said, I still really like the relationship between Inez and Anthony. Like the idea that this person would be like, like love at first sight. And then just like thinks that the way that he probably did once for Dignan, right. And the way that Dignan does for um, Mr. Henry, he like mythologizes her, right. Where like everything she's doing becomes the most fascinating thing imaginable where like he can't help, but follow her into rooms so that he can watch how she, um, makes the bed. There's this really, really funny line where like she comes into his room to do housekeeping and she just opens the blinds and he's like, gosh, it's amazing how you can brighten up a room. And it's like, bro, like she opened (laughs) and like, but that's, that's like kind of a great example of like how he had made her into this, like this, like he had put her on this pedestal. And I think that like a big part of her coming to appreciate him is, is understanding that like that was genuine and that, that she could be seen this way and that she could see him this way and that they could value each other that way. Um, the way that a lot of these characters end up doing for one another, whether or not it's true. Right. But that, that it's messy, I guess is what I'm saying. So I, I think I agree with Aaron that like, there are parts of that that are messy, but I still really like it, which is kind of maybe a good epilogue for this entire movie. Um, but I, I don't know. There's so much happening here that I like, you know? There is plenty to like. A um, couple quick hits from me first. Uh, I, I think Harry characterized uh, Wes Anderson's race issues pretty well. Um, I won't linger on that for too much. Um, he is uh, jarringly othering of non-English speakers. Isle of Dogs is the example of that um not certainly not the only example and like even uh, like i will go to bat for the darjeeling limited um to a certain point um like it's one of my favorite films of his and I, like in my mind he does most of the appropriate legwork to like make that feel comfortable and we're not just like gazing uh y- you know wistfully at this 
at this country that these that these white guys are kind of touring through um but the idea of the movie is like you know we we've got to like we're on this great journey to find ourselves and to find each other and to find our family and to do that like we need to get on a train and go to a place far away and India is just, you know, the Darjeeling Limited is kind of the fill-in for that. Um, you could have made any other <laughs> any other choice, um, but he made that choice, and it's not it's 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 not even that's not flawless, you know. Like I, I would certainly not like talk back to to anyone or, or try to rebuff anybody who says like, well, like that has a whole host of problems because buddy uh you know it certainly does um unrelated to all that my only other shout out is to uh a band that i stumbled upon uh, you know every that kind of like late middle school to early high school time of my life the band was called the day at the fair it's like kind of this pop rocky kind of sound that we're all somewhat familiar with probably from those days um back then that would have been an album i forget the name of the album um because my brain is applesauce right now but like like i would not have skipped a single track on that album one of the names uh of their songs was and my name's dignan so what and uh watching bottle rocket for the first time and coming across that line i was definitely like leonardo dicaprio meme pointing at the screen like that was such a, a beautiful gold nugget to kind of find in, in the drudges of, of the world. Um, so yeah, sh- shout outs. They <laughs> are not making music any longer. I don't think, um, I haven't really kept up with them as, as is, you know, that happens, uh, with the things you like when you're 13, but, uh, figured, you know, little itty bitty shout out to them. I feel like I know a little bit more about Cody now and it is a really good feeling. Uh, but I hope that I can learn even a little bit more in our final segment of the show, which uh, Harry has to help me introduce. I would be delighted, Jason. The final segment is known as <gasps> Cody's Noties. Beautiful. Thank you so much, gentle, uh, gentlemen, for that uh, explosive introduction. Um you may have seen this one coming. We've got yet another filmmaker trivia session to contend with. Uh, following our peaks into the careers of Peter Bogdanovich and Polly Platt, we will now kind of, con- uh, well, not quite conclude. You know, we're nearing the end of this Platt film series. Uh, we may have one more in the bucket. Stay tuned. Um, but, you know, shout out to the Trial and Cinema for putting on this Platt series. Uh, we are now going to be dipping our toes into more Andersonian waters. And hopefully we will learn once and for all how the West was won. Pew, 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 pew. Um, very good. Yeah, yeah, that rules, Cody. Well done. Thank, thank you very much. Um, yeah, that, yeah, that, that's right. Today we'll be running through some Wes Anderson factoids, as we've been kind of doing the for the past hour plus. What I'll do is present each tidbit one at a time. After each statement, I will ask y'all in alphabetical by first name order to respond. You'll get a point for every correct answer, and the person with the most points at the end wins. As always, Trivia Mafia rules apply here, so use your noodles, not your Googles. Um, With that, we can jump in uh, for our first question. We are going to invoke the Rashomon rule, which is that no film needs to be longer than Rashomon, a perfect film released in 1950 and directed by Akira Kurosawa. Rashomon comes in at 88 minutes. So I ask you all, what percentage of, I'll say, feature films, because he's got some shorties in his filmography, what percentage of feature films directed by Wes Anderson, abide by the Rashomon rule, and because it does have runtime details posted on Letterboxd, I am including the French Dispatch for consideration in this exercise. So that's an extra variable. I'll start with Aaron. What percentage? 
Oh, uh, 12%. 12% says Aaron following that, that gust of wind. I had to put on an extra layer. Uh, Harry, Ooh, what's your choice? I hate to do this to Aaron, but I'm going to say 10%. Harry says 10%. Uh, what about you, Jason? 15%. You're, I fuck, just, just do 13%. Like, what is the, look, uh, (laughs) thank you for giving me the 2% on either side, fellas. Love it. We're, we're having fun. And everybody here was, was kind of in the right ballpark to bring in yet another sports, um, thing. But of the 10 feature film credits that list Anderson as director using Letterboxd as our yardstick, one of them comes in at, uh, at or under 88 minutes, which gets us to 10%. Harry gets the point. Um, and I'm immediately forgetting. I believe it is fantastic, Mr. Fox. Yep. Uh, yes. That fulfills that. Another wild thing, I hope I'm not uh, misremembering this because I was uh, perusing Letterboxd late at night. I don't think he has a singer film over two hours. Like, I think Life Aquatic is like 115 minutes or something. Like, that's the closest he comes. King shit, honestly, kind How of. How Grand Budapest? Oh... Uh, Oh boy! Um, what is it right now? 100 minutes, ninety-eight. Yeah, oh. 100 minutes. Yeah. yeah, French Dispatch is going to be like one hundred and four, which seems wild to me. What a thing! <laughs> like the- I thought I thought yeah. uh, French Dispatch was going to be like three and a half hours long. It looks like it could be right. We're going to like eighty different locations over the course of a minute and a half teaser. Um, what, whatever. Hey, hey, 104 though, again, uh, can't dispute the king. Um, well you can, because that's like a corrupt system, but we don't need to get into that. Um, next up here, second question, Harry gets the point, uh, for the first question. Uh, we've got, uh, we're going to consult IMDB for, for a number of these, uh, in this case, uh, in many IMDB actor or director profiles, they've got a, a section dedicated to trademarks. I'm using scare quotes, trademarks of that particular artist. What I'm going to do here is list four Wes Anderson, uh, excuse me, Wes Anderson trademarks per IMDB. Three will be real. One will be a fake one that I just kind of threw in. And your job will be to pick out the fake trademarks. I'm going to read them you know, one at a you time. You know that you're a very, very good liar though, Cody. So this game is almost never fair. You, you said like last episode, was it? That just like, Cody, you're, you know, you're good at lying, but you're not that good at lying. So I, I don't know how to, I, I don't and know And then to I lost this. that round. Oh yeah, that's because what the fuck is that good at lying? Uh, Joker's trick. Um, no, anyways, he's uh, not. Uh, oh boy. Uh, wink, first, wink. the the first stink stink. Uh, the the first trademark um, is as follows: makes obsessive and comedic use of rostrum camera insert shots, foregrounding the minutia of books and other documents. So that's the first trademark. Second trademark frequently incorporates folk. Twee pop and indie rock music into the scores of his movies. The third one. The title cards are almost always in the font Futura Bold, most commonly in yellow color. And the fourth one. At least one of his characters is usually a grown man seeking the approval of a parent or parent figure. So which one of those is the not uh, IMDb christened trademark of one Wes Anderson? Aaron? Uh... Ooh, I was going to go with two, but I am nitpicking the grammar and parent figure, parental figure. Which does it say? Parent figure. Okay, you said that too surely. I'm going to go the second one. I mean, I have it written out right in front of me. But, okay, Aaron's going to go B, uh, nitpicking notwithstanding. Harry? 
Ooh, this is a tricky one because like there are so many little technicalities that you could have thrown off. Like I don't know if that's the specific font. It could be a different font. Um, that could be the, a different name of a shot that then I'm thinking of. Um, you could have even said like, I don't know if, if I pop or indie rock is what I would say. I might say something like punk music instead. Um, I'm obviously delaying my answer, but I'm going to go with number four, I guess. Harry's going to go with number four. What one is one Jason Daphne is going to go with? Remember, I am so good at lying. God damn, he did it again. Um, I, I, I forget which one is the font one, but the font one. I'm going to go with the font one. Okay, the font one. Um, you know, with fonts like these, who needs an enemy? Uh, I butchered that. You, you're going to leave that in. I know you are. The fake trademark... The fake trademark, gents, is uh, is B. Uh, Aaron got the point there. Um, it's yeah. Um, you know, it that's somewhat accurate. Uh, all the <laughs> technicalities Harry mentioned, uh, again, notwithstanding, uh, IMDb didn't have it included in its master list. There is, however, one mu- uh, musically related trademark listed on uh, Mr. Wes Anderson's profile, and that reads as follows: Just about the entire score of all of his movies, with the exception of the Darjeeling Limited and the Grand Budapest Hotel, were composed by Mark. Mothersbaugh. So shout out to Mark Mothersbaugh. You're in trademarks, I guess. That's cool. Um, huh. Yeah, Mark Mothersbaugh. Come on the pod. Uh, number three. Um, we're we're gonna take. We're gonna go back a few years to uh, an article released by IndieWire detailing 30 of Wes Anderson's favorite films. Um, I'm gonna ask you uh, now, shortly right the second which of the following previous try love episode movies did anderson not include on his favorite films list i'm gonna list three of them two of them he did include one of them he did not um they are to be or not to be the 400 blows stray dog so which one of those is not included in wes anderson's quote-unquote favorite movies aaron stray dog aaron says stray dog uh harry what's your guess to be or not to be. To be or not to be, Jason? I'm sorry, which was the, th- the second one? Uh, well, I'll, well, I'll just give it again. To be or not to be, the 400 blows, Stray Dog. Go with the spread, bro. I will say go with the spread. You got to do. Yeah, I'm gonna, I, I got to go. I got to go for the spread. Uh, 400 blows. I, I regret not choosing the 400 blows, but yeah. You're just making space for me. The spread has been covered. Um, there's uh, only going to be one coming out of this with a point, and that individual is one Harry Mack, and the correct answer here is to be or not to be. Uh, I will say he did have some Lubitsch representation on his list through the film Trouble in Paradise, which is not one that we covered back in, like, 2019. Holy shit. Uh, but it's still quite good, and um, I know it's... Uh, I don't think it's actively streaming anywhere right now, but it, it's it, it's worth watching if you can find it. Um, the Lubitsch hey, Cody, touch, baby. Yeah, what, Aaron, what you didn't know is that uh, in the lead up to Isle of Dogs, Wes Anderson would not shut the fuck up about how he was making a Kurosawa movie and it was his Kurosawa movie, which also like deeply engendered me against that movie. So maybe it has I, nothing I'm not to do with Kurosawa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> the thing is, I, I could see 400 blows, I think. I understand Jason wanted to do the spread there, but I think that was felt pretty obvious to me. But like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. What we stand a a king with good taste, I guess. I mean, Stray Dog's a great movie. 
yeah, that's it's kind of a wild list. I, I, I don't know if we need to include it in the show notes. Uh, it's easily Googleable. Uh, I don't know if IndieWire needs the attention from a, a wee little 93 follower on Twitter podcast, but uh, it's out there and it's it's a solid list. Uh, what's that, Harry? Oh, I believe it's 94. Oh, boy. Okay, shout outs to us. Uh, we're in it, folks. Um, a quick che- uh, check of the scoreboard here. Um, we've got Harry in the lead with two. We've got Aaron uh, following at, uh, at his heels with one. Jason has yet to get on the board, but we've still got two more here. It's uh, it's anybody's game, at least for, for a co-share of the lead. Um, for the second to last question, we're going to head back to the... Uh, Internet movie database? I had to question that. Yes, IMDb. Uh, this time to talk a little bit about awards. So going by IMDb's metrics, um, Wes Anderson has been nominated for 252 different awards over the course of his career. Uh, same. Uh, my question to you all, how many of those nominations did he share with Owen Wilson? Like it was a nomination for him <laughs> and Owen Wilson. Um, that is my question. I'm looking for uh, a, a raw, a raw number, not percentages or anything like that. Um, so I'll start. I'll, I'll start with you. Uh, two hundred fifty-two is what you have to work 252? with. Two hundred fifty-two. Uh, oh God, this is a this is a uh, kind of this is a card. good question. Yeah. Um, uh, sixteen. Aaron says sixteen. Uh, Harry, how many do you say? Damn it, that's a really good guess, Aaron. Because I'm guessing that like. Owen Wilson would have co-written a bunch of these. Uh, Cody, if you if you guess above, just like right above or below my guess again, I'm I'm gonna kick your. I'm gonna I'm gonna come sure. get you. Can I ask a clarifying question, Cody? Yeah, uh, you, you probably can. won't answer. Yeah. Uh, we'll if, if Owen Wilson is nominated for a movie that Wes Anderson directed, are you giving that like a co a co credit, or is that just Owen Wilson's uh, nomination? <laughs> Uh, that's a fair question. Um, I am not counting those specific types of nominations. See, that's why that's why sixteen is a very good guess. Um, damn it! But now I, I feel like I can't. I'm going to go with uh, twenty five. Is that is that sufficient, Aaron? Is that all right? <laughs> yeah, that's fine. As long as Jason right, goes yeah. above you. Yes. Well, I was going to say as long as Jason picks another square number, and you've got sixteen and twenty five. Um, but uh, hey, that's just my own Nerd. kind of quantitative preference. Uh, yeah, Jason, you can guess whatever you would like. Jason, go for a hundred. Wow, <laughs> do go um, for eighty-one. Jason, going for forty-nine. You are okay. Hey, forty-nine. Uh, shout out to the number seven. Um, come on the pod. The total nominations shared in name by Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson. Juntos is. 16! Aaron Grossman. God I shit points for that. I would like to get two points for that if You're I could. You're going to get one That's point. Um, oh. To, to, to fill that in a little bit with some context, those are largely attributed to the Royal Tenenbaum screenplay, which they co-wrote. Uh, there's also some love for the Rushmore screenplay, as well as just like the entire Bottle Rocket production. Um, they kind of got credit for that in, in again, the same bucket. Um so that's fun. Um, we, we've got a tie now for the lead with, uh, with Harry and Aaron both floating up top uh, with two apiece. Uh, as we head into the final question, which is uh, it's similar to what we've done in previous games, uh, which is I'm going to read off three quotes allegedly uttered by Wes Anderson. Two of these utterances will be for real again allegedly, and one will be fake. Your task is to pick out the fake one. So I'll read off the three quotes and leave it to each of you to pick out the imposter afterward, starting with this first quote. Uh, That's the kind of movie that I like to make, where there is an invented reality 
and the audience is going to go someplace where hopefully they've never been before. The details, that's what the world is made of. So that's the first one. The second one here, if cinema was a painting, time would be the paint itself. It's all in the details. And the third quote here, I wouldn't say that I'm particularly bothered or obsessed with detail. So which of those is the fake quote, Aaron? Uh, going with B. Aaron is going with B. What's Harry going with? Ooh, I... So I'm metagaming here, but it, it's been a long time since I've taken one of these bad boys home. So I'm sorry, Aaron. I'm also going to go no, with No, no, no. Wait, hold on, hold on. Hold, hold, hold on a, a fucking minute here, buddy. All right. Now, I, I first name is Aaron, okay? It's, it's two names, okay? All right? So I go first in the thing, okay? And that's usually putting me to disadvantage. 99 times, all the numerical ones, you guys could go over and above me and below me and trap me, okay? The one thing is that in a case like this, I get to guess, and then you, as honor dictates, have to pick a different fucking answer, all right? That, I, I'm, I've had enough of this. You got it. You got to change your guess. Uh, so I've got Harry locked in. I've got uh, Harry locked in at B. What can I lock Jason in at with? You get it. You can lock me into C. All right. So the imposter quote is B. Beat. God damn Goosh, it. Beat. This, this quote was actually allegedly said by a different filmmaker and for a bonus point. Oh, shit. For a bonus point. So this is going to be a fastest hand situation. So everybody listen the fuck up as I get my eyes on those Zencaster hands. Um, I'm going to outline it here. Uh, for a bonus point, everyone's going to get the same attempt to guess at who this director is, kind of going by those fastest hand rules. You get one guess over the course of this you know, reading. I'll start describing this filmmaker, and the first hand I see will get first go at a guess, and then we'll kind of go in order after that. Um, so like, like Wes Anderson, this guy was also born Aaron? Uh, Justin Lin. Justin Lin is Aaron's guess. Justin Lin is not the filmmaker that Damn we're looking it. for. Um, so I'm going to start at the beginning of the sentence I was in the middle of. Like, Ander- like Wes Anderson, this guy was also born in Houston, Texas. He's well known for a specific trilogy of films, but he's also famous uh, for his hangout movies. He's had uh, Jason. Richard Linklater. Richard Linklater is correct. I will. You guys finish, can uh, eat my butthole from behind. I got the <laughs> bonus point. I am happy. Uh, he's uh, he's had some mediocre releases lately that uh, I just haven't seen. I'm going off of word of mouth, but I'd argue his last great film was Everybody Wants Some. I fucking love that movie, that baseball ass bro movie. Uh, he's also got School of Rock and Boyhood under his belt. It is indeed for, um, Houston born and maybe raised question mark richard linkletter uh that's indeed who we were looking for in that quote he just said the first part about the paint not the last part about the details it was just me inserting more stuff about details because details 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 um quick uh, quick outro thanks for playing i i think we all learned a little something today about uh how exactly the west was won and um we had a, 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 and how it was won, it was a, evidently a lead that was shared all the way through to the end. I've got Aaron and Harry both uh, tied at the top with three. Jason made it on the board with one. Um, I'm maybe the biggest winner of all for pulling off a successful notice, but that's me, me just riding the four mimosas I had before recording. So um, 
I don't know. Read into that what you will. Thank you, gentlemen. Cody's mimosas. Uh, right. yeah. And, and I think we can all agree. Um, and I will uh, close the window and lose all of the recordings if you, uh, disagree, but I think we can all agree that, uh, you know, the, the real, uh, the real test of skill was, was the final answer. Um, the bonus question. So moral high ground, uh, the I do the agree with that Jason. victory. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I actually, the, agree with, I think you actually won this one. To, the, see, this is all I've ever wanted. This was my 70 year, five I don't know year plan. This. I, I think I think you won this one, Jason. I think last point wins rules uh, fits in this scenario. I think you won this one. Not, not very uncomfortable because just specifically Harry won this one. Oh, Jason, oh, so I think Aaron's, you won this one. Aaron, no. Aaron only wants to keep it from Harry. He doesn't want to reward no, me. I, I want to award I won't best man that. wins. I I won't accept that. It was a tie, and uh, and the bonus point was Listen, no, just it's a fine. Big fuck you can't you. you can't you can't eat honor. The moral high ground will not keep you warm at night. That's what victories are for. So you guys can have your. He your did it for what? He didn't, didn't have even win. honor. He didn't I, even win. He didn't even win. He, win, got, he, he got a tie. He got a tie. Tie's yeah. not a win. Correct. You know, it's good enough for me. It's good enough for me. Thank you, Cody. Thank you, Thank Aaron. You. I will be the bigger man. I will say congratulations to you, sir. You were a staunch opponent. And I appreciate the game as always. Congratulations to you both. You are both equally matched. Um, never one above the other. You are entirely equitable equals until the end of time. Uh, and that is final. Thank you very much for listening to Trial of a Literal Roundtable podcast. Uh, you can find tickets to Battle Rocket for this coming for this coming weekend's showing at trilon.org. You can also join the Trilon Club. They've got some really cool stuff planned. You can buy merch. You can do a lot of cool things at the Trilon. One of them that you should do is wear a mask. Uh, Local mandate says it's optional. I'm still going to. Uh, We'll be there over the next few weeks seeing movies. Come out and see us, if nothing else. If one of you 94 people actually knows any of our faces, uh, come see us there. It would be really nice after so long. But uh, until then, my name is Jason Daphnis. You can find our podcast at Try Love Podcast. You can find this voice at Nintendoofus on Twitter. Very good, Jason. Um, yeah, I very much looking forward to seeing you cuties out in the real world at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, y'all are cuties with or without the masks on, so I say, why not just you know wear those masks a little bit longer? Um, it's it's good for you. It's good for your community. Um, so please do that. Uh, I've been Cody Narvis and you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Man, Mimosa Cody is so flirty. I love this energy that we're taking into this. Um, just real quick before we go, um, I want to shout out a friend, friend of the pod, Peter Hoganson, who's making, he's directing a movie called um, Life Underground. It's a short film about queer characters in World War I. Um, they're kickstarting it right now. I retweeted their Kickstarter link on our podcast and on my personal Twitter. I'll retweet that again. I promised them I would shout this out. It sounds really cool. You can read all about it there. Um, they're trying to get it financed right now. Um, I think that he has a lot of great ideas. He's a really accomplished editor. Um, he's in film school right now. So if you would check that out and maybe kick some bucks their way, I would really appreciate it because it's something I personally want to see very badly. Um, so yeah, that's Life Underground. Um, it's a short film about queer characters in World War One. You can can follow them on Twitter. You can support them on Kickstarter, etc. We'll put it in the show notes. That's what I've got. My name's Harry. You can find me on Twitter at Shitaki Harry. 
Damn, stole my thunder there with the Peter shout-out. Yeah, shout-out to, shout to Peter. Uh, good good pal. Uh, Kickstarter looks uh, looks exciting. I did a rare login to Twitter in order to retweet it. Uh, not even retweet it. Yeah, d- yeah I, I did retweet it. Uh, so, yes, definitely go check that out. Uh, for sure, throw some money over there if you're, if you're able uh, to do so. Uh, other than that, uh, my name is Aaron. Find me on Twitter at uh, RBPlease. And he did not mention the fact that he's on a break, so that is canon now. We can take that with us out into the world. Um, and just remember, I think I know what you've been going through, man, because I've been through some heavy shit myself. If you feel alone, like nobody in the world cares, and nobody in the fucking world gives a shit, then I'm here. I'm ready to listen, man. If you want, I'll even open up first. I mean, my brother, that's a shit situation, you know? I mean, he beats the crap out of me all the time. Yeah.